Luke chapter 8, verse 40. I'm going to read this for you, and we're going to read through the end of Luke chapter 8. There are two events that occur here, and I just think it's uh, profoundly impactful for us and where we are today, and I hopefully, hopefully it's helpful for you. Allow me to read verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had been waiting, waiting for him. I just want you to remember that. Where had he been? We were there last week. He had been told, evidently, by the Father to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the land of the Gadarenes or Gennesaret, over the Sea of Gennesaret, and he went and he encountered two demoniacs. One, one, one account said there were two demoniacs, so there obviously were. The other just mentioned one. He encountered these demoniacs, uh, very incredible. They cast the supernatural realm, the demonic entities out of them. They went into a herd of swine. They ran down, maybe 2,000 of them ran down and drowned. And uh, Jesus was just like, all right, let's go back to the other side. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about that, but just remember when he got back to the other side, throngs of people welcomed him because they had been waiting for him. There was a lot of action on the other side. And he could have easily said, well, all the action's over here. There's nothing over there. Why in the world would I go to the land of the Gentiles, go to one of the cities of the Decapolis, and go to where there's uh, tombs and swine and all that? It's just everything unclean that no Jewish person would do. Why would he even get, and why would he take all his disciples with him and then come back? Why, why not stay where the action was? And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet. Let me just tell you, this was basically the mayor of the town. This was the lead official in the synagogue there. And as Jesus comes back, he falls at his feet and began to implore him to come to his house because he had only one daughter, about 12 years old. Remember that? We'll talk about that briefly in a minute. And she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Okay, so imagine on this side, just nothing, pigs and demoniacs, all right? And then they get back and then just welcome and people falling and they're want, falling at his feet, important people, all the activity that he gets back and he goes, wow, uh, Father, I wonder why I didn't stay here. I wonder if that went, went through Jesus' mind. I don't know. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, she'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Some of you have been struggling with health, health issues. Some of you all of your life, some of you for 40 years, some of you for 10 years. It was about 12 years for me. Many of you know it was just a slow decline, and, and boy, is that debilitating. My heart goes out to you. I can, in this way, feel your pain. As many of you know, I had been bound to a wheelchair for a period of time and didn't know if I'd ever walk again. It was a bad, it was a bad dark time. Let me tell you something. She'd been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. Not only that, to compile the misery, she would have, according to the Levitical law, be seen as unclean, right? Because a woman in, during her menstruation period was considered by the Levitical law to be unclean and then was in some ways separated from the community. I won't get into all that, ladies. If you're offended by that, that's another conversation. I won't get into that. But let me just say, just go to understand she would have been considered unclean, hemorrhaging for 12 long years. Mark chapter 5 actually gives us some in additional insight into this. And what was it? Well, she had been to all kinds of physicians, and she had spent every last shekel, every last penny she had for nothing. Some of you have been there too. 
Some of you may be there right now. Spent all kinds of money, been everywhere, talked to every doctor, gone everywhere, and nobody could help. So verse 44, catch this. She comes up behind and simply touched the fringe of his cloak. That seems pretty innocuous, right? Now, why did she have to, what, sneak up? I mean, it didn't say it, but she had to sneak up because she was unclean. Many in her community would have known that she was unclean. What is she doing here? They would have known well her condition. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, because people were saying, we didn't touch you, we didn't touch you, because they thought they were in trouble, right? And, and maybe she maybe she had at first denied it. I don't know. I mean, and, and Peter said, Master, people are crowding and pressing in on you. In other words, how would you know? But Jesus said, someone did touch me, and I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now, I, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, you get TV preachers and different things, and they're saying, look, power, I got power in this cloth or power in this oil, and if you'll send in X amount of dollars or support our ministry, you know, I'm going to send you a prayer cloth and all that. I don't, I'm not down for any of that. I'm sorry. I, just, I, I can't see that. It's not, there's not that. But somehow he recognized out of his very being, power had gone out. Now, but he wasn't yet. He was a fully man. And, and so, I, again, that hypostatic union, I don't know how that works. But that's exactly what he said. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling. And now you know why, trembling. Was he going to rebuke her? Was he now going to be considered unclean? Was this, is this now, is he going to have to go? And we know a lot about this now, don't, don't we? Is he going to have to go under uh, unclean protocol and be quarantined and all that and all these people who were there to be with him and hear his glorious teaching and maybe even be healed and had come from miles around? Is he now considered Unclean. I mean, you can imagine the terror that she was experiencing. She fell down before him and declared in the presence of the people the reason for which she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, now this is interesting because it's the only place in Scripture that we have Jesus addressing a particular individual as a daughter. He's now calling her a daughter, not unclean woman, not anything else. Family, family, you, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, the question could and should be asked, why did Jesus have to kind of shame her like that? Couldn't she have just gone away and, and kind of receded into the crowd knowing that she'd been healed and she could have told a few people? Why would Jesus have to shame an, a woman in a community that obviously knew, they knew she was unclean, and bring her out in the open and, and, and embarrass her. He wasn't. He was lifting her up. He wanted the community to know that she is now clean. She's going to go from kind of a position of being a leper in their eyes to being someone who's been clean, has been cleaned and is completely, is completely well again. That's extraordinary. Again, does Jesus notice the details of life? You have to know. Jesus knows the details. He recognizes the smallest of your issues. The smallest. I meet people every day and they're just, you know, well, God's somewhere out there and they call him the man upstairs or a higher power or something. They just, 
They don't feel any intimacy with with God because he just doesn't know the details. What Jesus is clearly showing us is that he cares very much about the details. Well, what about Jairus? I mean, does he not care about the the fact that his daughter, I mean, he gets caught up in this moment and this in this encounter and did he did he forget about the 12-year-old daughter? Interesting again, we have a 12-year-old daughter, we have someone that's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Jesus was 12 when he entered the temple. We don't get anything else till he's 30, but he was 12 years old when he went down to Jerusalem with his parents and, and he entered the temple. 12's mentioned uh, 22 times in the book of Revelation only. There are 12 disciples, there are 12 tribes, there, there are just 12 emerges over and over and over in Scripture. It's amazing how that happens. Do you think that's by chance? It could be. I always ask the question, I'm not into numerology or anything, I'm really not, but I do understand that from a Jewish perspective, numbers have meaning. It really, 12, the number 12 for, uh, from a Jewish perspective, a biblical perspective, I should say, a biblical perspective is the number of completeness, not unlike three or seven or 10. Three is really the Godhead, as you can imagine, Father, Son, and Spirit. Four, humans, uh, the four corners of the earth, etc. You multiply those are 12. It's human governance where God's uh, uh, completeness of government merges with the earth. It's all those kinds of things. And, and I don't want to get too speculative here. It's really not the point. I just want to call out to you that when you're reading your Bible, be aware of some of these things. They're important, and they may speak to you in a specific way, and they should, in my view. Forty is very important, right? Three days in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness. Excuse me, three days of fasting and prayer. Three means something. Forty means something. There's a, All these things mean things. Jesus was very intentional about 12 disciples, about choosing 70 uh, to go out on another missionary journey. Very uh, Again, he's, he's very clear about what he's doing. He's, he's really chronicling what happened to Israel in the wilderness and their failure and the 70 that were chosen. And now he chooses a new 70 and they go out and spread the gospel. Just, just be aware of that. So verse 49, what about poor Jairus? Did he not care? Well, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official. Very important person. Well, your daughter, she's dead. Don't trouble, teacher, anymore. It's over. Tell him to go back to his business. We thought we had him. Maybe he could have healed her before she died. We knew she was on her very last few breaths. Can you imagine? Some of you have lost children. Can't imagine the grief that you continue to feel to this day. I'm going to be in Fresno here in another, in another few weeks doing a memorial for my friend Jeff that we've talked about at great length, and I will be there with his father and his mother. They've lost a child. Yeah, he was 50, 57 years old in one day, but they're still grieving parents, and she's 12. It's over. And when Jesus heard this, he said, Really, Jesus, don't you have anything? Just don't be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well, made well. She's dead. And when he came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter with him except for Peter and John and James. Why? Remember the concentric circles. He's doing the deep work in their lives and then the 12 and then the 70 and then all, you know, there, there's concentric circles in your life as well. I can't, I can't connect with everybody you know, as I told you the other day, I'm always in a storm. I'm connected to thousands of people through Church of the Red Door and through links and through 
all the different relationships I have, and I'm grieving. Some of you saw this week that Casey Martin had his leg amputated up at Mayo. It was uh, in international news. He was the young man who had won a national championship with Tiger Woods while they were at Stanford and went on and, and sued the PGA Tour because he wanted to be able to play. He had Klippel Trenane syndrome, and his leg was so shriveled up and had to be in a hard stocking. He could barely walk, and yet he could still play professional golf. Can you imagine? And needed to be in a tour, uh, needed to be in a cart, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was big, big news 15 years ago. And he only played a year, but he actually won a tournament uh, on the supplemental tour. At that time, I believe it was the Nike Tour. And then, you know, fast forward, he becomes the golf coach at Oregon. They went, end up winning a national championship, and Casey's a good friend. We've done some outreaches together. His father, King, is on our national board at Lynx and other things. And so I've been in touch each day, and I knew the surgery was coming and it was pending. And I texted Casey and, and King just three hours before the surgery, and we didn't know how it was going to go. And, you know, and it went, it went really well. And chances are you've seen it on your newsfeed over the last few days. And, in fact, I was texting with King this morning. Casey's doing really well, but what if Casey had died, or what about, you know, what, 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 what if, what if? There are always storms. I've got extended people, many in my life, and there's just always people going through storms, and I feel it. I, I you know, some people say, well, they're EMT people, and they just try to stay removed from it. I can't stay removed from your pain, but I, some people I feel a little bit more because I do more. I spend more life with them, but I feel... Is the as the concentric circles get wider, I still I still I still feel your pain. As a pastor, we as a church, we really do. And some of you, well, I had a surgery, or they didn't even know I was sick. And we're going to talk about that in future weeks and how we can correct that. And talk to you a little bit about that. But just know that he did. Even Jesus did this. He took three of them into the house. Just three. Don't be afraid any longer, really. Now, verse fifty-two and says. And they were all weeping and lamenting her. And he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but she is asleep. And some began to laugh, to mock, really, to ridicule, knowing that she had died. And verse 54 says, and he, however, took her by the hand and simply said, child, rise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. And Now, this is I find interesting, too. Don't skip over there. And he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. You know, details. <laughs> Creator of the universe. You know, she's been dead. She's hungry. I mean, that's just so strange, you know. But the first thing, you know, I mean, because I imagine that Jesus is thinking, well, people are going to go crazy and they're going to maybe parade her through the streets. I mean, gosh, knows what. She's hungry. Jesus, the Father in heaven, even knows when you're hungry. Think about it. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Now, let me just quickly say, this is certainly about God's ability to heal. But in an ultimate way, God does heal. And I'm not a secessionist believing that God really doesn't heal anymore. But I will tell you, I pray for a lot of people. Some are healed. Many, many, many are not healed. And maybe you say, well, you don't have any power. Right? You know, I mean, there are different views in the church about all that. I just, I pray, I pray for things and there's certainly but it's also amazing how some people are, are healed uh, over time and then and then you look back and in the end of the time we can say I wonder what God did in her life why did she have to suffer if he's going to heal her why did the woman of hemorrhaging of blood had to suffer for 12 years why 
Why the suffering? You know, they've, I finally got some healing. I got some resolution to my issue, and I'm standing in front of you today. But I went through that for a long time. Couldn't, I, couldn't God have done something earlier? I don't know. I'm just telling you, I don't know that the, fi- the foundation of the story or the fact that God heals all the time. I don't think that's the, what we should derive from this. There's always a plan even in our suffering, and he's discipling through her pain and through this, and he's trying to show them, and the little, the little girl, and he takes them in. And I wonder if her being 12 was like, this is for the 12 disciples, you know, just like the, when he fed the thousands with just a few fish and loaves and how many basketfuls were left over. Why would the Bible even make a comment about that unless it had some pertinence there were 12 basketfuls left over. 12 years, 12 years of hemorrhaging. I think he's saying, disciples, look and see, know that I am the master of the universe. But ultimately, had this little girl not been healed or this woman not been healed, had that not happened, I'm still the master of the universe. And your ultimate eternal uh, longevity in the presence of the creator of the universe is ultimately much more important than a temporary, momentary healing. And I don't say that without, without empathy for your struggles. I don't. So what did Jesus know? I want to take you back to verse 22 real quick, Luke 8, 22. What's really fascinating, this is how we started the trip going on the other side. Remember, verse 22 said, And now on one of those days, Jesus and disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. I just stopped for a minute. That Remember, they were leaving a swarm of activity. A swarm is kind of like, look at all the things that are going on. You know, your, your opportunities are extraordinary. Go to the other side of the lake. You're leaving the biggest action. It'd be like, you know, I don't know if you're, any of you are watching the playoffs or Dodger fans or anything. It'd be like the guy gets up and it's, a, it's the bottom of the ninth last night and the Atlanta ended up beating the Dodgers, you know, and, and they winds up and the pitcher winds up and he's just about to throw that pitch and he goes, you know what, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to in and out And he gets off the deal and goes, and gets in and out burgers. It's like, don't you realize how important this is? Don't you realize the significance of this moment? I mean, this is where we're, they're going to make you king. You know, you are the king. Prove to them that you're the king. And he gets in a boat. And there's some things that I don't know. Did Jesus know that a storm was going to be on the lake? I don't know that. I think personally, if you ask me, I think he just knew the Father. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do, what I see the Father doing. The Father told him to go and cross the lake. It's a little bit where we are here at CRD. Go and do this. Cross the lake here. And then we hit a storm, a pandemic, and many other things. Does that mean that God didn't say go? No. It's unclear to me if he knew that he would encounter a few demoniacs on the other side and 2,000 pigs. I don't know if he knew that. I know he know it. I I know he knew it when he got there. But did he have full knowledge of everything? I, he had full knowledge of his ultimate vision. Because remember, at the first miracle at Cana, he was very clear. He said, "The time is not yet." He knew that he had come. At some point, he knew he was going to be the Lamb of God. But I don't think he knew all the details of what he was going to encounter every single day, and that's what forced him to his knees. 
in that way, he was tempted like we are. You're not, you, you don't know. And we as a church are tempted. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And what if it is the viral age? And what if? And what if? And what? And, you know, you don't think these things go through my mind. What if we don't get the money to build? And what if we don't? What if? if, well, what if I just can't do that. I can't live life like that. Why? It, it, there's no way I can be cool, calm, and collected. It's no way my, my whoop bracelet's going to say 55 beats per minute. There's no way I can sleep on the boat in the middle of a storm unless I've heard the Father's voice, period. Well, you sit down, you figure all the pros and the cons, and that's what businesses do. The kingdom of God is not a business. It's not a corporation. In fact, when I try to figure it out and I go, okay, good and bad and pros and cons, pretty much every time I try to do that, I got all these cons and I can't even find a pro. And then Jesus says, well, I want you to go to the other side anyway. It is clear that he knew that the crowds wanted his attention, and he went anyway. He knew where the action was. It was on the west side, not the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's also clear to me that he didn't concern himself with what might have appeared to be the most important task. You know what the most important task in your life is this morning? To do exactly what the Lord is leading you to do today. That's the most important task you have. And if you're faithful with that, he's going to make you in charge of a little bit more. And as you get faithful in that, he'll make you in charge of a little bit more. And as you fail that, he doesn't love you. He's a, you, you. Your fruitfulness may go down a little bit. You may be way off course now, whatever it is. He still loves you. He would still call you daughter or son. But in the end, that's the fact. And again, as I've said, I, I'm just so fascinated that Jesus was so present. How do you stay utterly calm, cool, and collected? Well, you become a Hollywood uh, movie star and you play a role. Clint Eastwood, I mean, you know, in the midst, I mean, that's what all these action figures and everything, they're in the midst of the most terrifying thing where everybody runs and the reason we go to watch them in places like this with surround sound and every other thing is everything's going crazy. The storms are going crazy. Go ahead. Now, the fascinating part is that we love the idea of cool, calm, and collected. But I'm going to ask you a question. Is Hollywood cool, calm, and collected in their real lives? Divorce. Laura and I were talking about it the other day. I, you know, I saw that one of the celebrities that's about my age, you know, they're, they're, they're aging now and they're, you know, do they have, is that their real hair? Is it, you look all this stupid stuff, you know, the people, you know, do they have a belly? Do they, you know, all this stuff that you see on the stupid, on the stupid television and in the rags and everything else. And so they're aging, you know, I'm getting, creeping up on 60 here in another couple of years. And, and, you know, it just, you can't you try to hold on. So the men, they, they marry half their age girls. And, you know, and I was, I was asking, I was telling Laura, I said, I don't even know what that would look like. I mean, that would be. I just can't imagine being able to have a conversation with somebody I haven't done life with that I can't. I said, it may, may look good on this side, but the back end is that it's an extraordinary thing when you stay with one person for a long period of time. Cool, calm, and collected. That's not what I see from Hollywood, other than up here on the big screen. But Jesus, cool, asleep, calm, collected, 55 beats per minute. How do you do that? Because you know that the only thing you really have to do in your spiritual life is do exactly what the Lord has for you today. And that may just be, I want you to start reading your Bible. 
I want you to start going regularly to church so you can be part of a community. I want you to give some money. I want you to go and befriend somebody. I want you to be a I want you to have the eyes of Jesus where you notice the details. See, what happened to me when I was born again is I began to all of a sudden, you know, my whole, my whole world was me, 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 me. And, you know, I'm really interested in me. Isn't it great? Me, myself, and I just me, 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 me. And all of a sudden I, got bo- I became born again. I, I started to see other people's pain. It was very strange. It was, a, it was a supernatural thing. It was one of the largest evidences that I've ever had because I could start to see that I actually began to care about other people. I be, was beginning to get Jesus' eyes. I'm still imperfect at that, but I'm so much different than I used to be. He knows everything. You'll start to see pain in others. You'll start to see need in others. And the paradox is, is when you do that, you think you'd be brought down, but it's, it's an elevating. The greatest among you will be your servants. And those servants are people who see people's needs. And they're present. If somebody calls you, you have time for them. You're aware. Awareness, that's what I see in Jesus. And this, my friends, allows you to drive 55. Beach permit. Calm, cool, collected in the midst of a storm. Now, I want to close this morning with this. <clears throat> I brought this. I've had this for a long time. Some of you know that I'm very involved in a lot of things that go on in Israel, and we as a church are indirectly uh, through the seminary over there. And someone gave me this a long time ago, and this is called a talit or a prayer shawl. Okay, and I don't know how authentic it is, but it was given to me by some Jewish men and women, and I'm assuming it's reasonably authentic. Not that that would make any difference to you. And this would have been normal garb, <clears throat> normal garb for a Jewish man who was faithful and, and uh, in his day. And they would go in and they would, uh, by the way, as an example, Jesus says, go into your closet and pray. And that's fine if you go into your literal closet. But if you don't have a big enough closet to go in, but that's not really what they were talking about. They would wrap this over and create this, and that was going into their closet to be able to pray. And if you understand that, that'll make more sense to you. And so they would, you'll see to this day, sometimes Jewish men will go down and they will cover their heads, and they're going into the privacy and the intimacy of a conversation with God. And that's what Jesus was referring to. So this is a talit, and if you'll see, it has uh, some long cords, a long cord here, a long cord here, four, on these four corners on the edge of this garment. It is my personal belief that the, when the woman who was hemorrhaging blood came to try to touch Jesus, it said he touched the edge of his garment, I think she was reaching out for these cords. And I'm going to give you the reason why I believe she was reaching out for these cords. If you go all the way back to the law, to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, listen to the admonition of what God had asked them to do. Numbers 15, 38, and we'll wind this thing down this morning. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels, these long, these long uh, tassels, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel of each cord of blue, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at. And when you see these tassels and these prayer shawls and these garments, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember all the commandments of the Lord. So when, when someone would look at these corners of the garment here, they would realize their thinking. It reminded them to think about the commandments of the Lord as to do them and not allow your own heart and your own eyes after which you have played the harlot. In other words, you're going to look at it, but remember, you, most people would look at the law and they wouldn't look and be happy necessarily, but they would probably realize all the ways that they had failed that week. Israel didn't do a very good job of walking out the law. I don't do a great job of walking out 
perfectly being led by the Spirit. How was your week? You know? Did you leave your phone on during service? Or did you? I'm just kidding. No, seriously. No, honestly, how, how did you do this week? Did you get upset with your spouse? Maybe you even had a fight this morning. I mean, I don't know. Uh, did, you, did you cut somebody off? Did you, did you get angry? Did you cheat? Did you steal? Did you rob? Did you look at things that you shouldn't be looking at through the eye gate? I mean, and then somebody walk around with this. And the last thing I would want to do is look. The law, in fact, Paul would go on to say that the law, the law actually brings death because you recognize I don't live up to that. But this was the admonition in the law. Do this so that you may remember all my commandments and to be holy uh, and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Remember, that's when he says that, he's always remember, remember your salvation. I brought you out of the world, Egypt. You went through your baptism. Remember, I'm the one who brought you. I'm the one who brought you in to be a daughter and a son. And I am the Lord your God. So I'm asking the question, I don't know. But I'm wondering if the woman, as Jesus is walking through, probably had his prayer shawl on. And I'm wondering if she didn't reach out and she was trying to touch. See, what's so fascinating about this is that if you go back in the Hebrew, kanaf in the Hebrew, the, the, the corner or the tassel area this corner, as it's translated in Malachi and other places, is actually mean wings. Wings. The corner. Why? Because you can hold this up and it looks like, it looks like you have wings, right? It's looking like wings. And men, men are holding these and they've got these remembrance of the law and the wings and all of this. Was she trying to reach out knowing that this was the Messiah? Or did she just think of this as a healing person? Or did she have more insight? See, we're going to go to the very closing words of the Old Testament. Some almost three to four hundred, three or four hundred years before the time of Jesus. And the very final prophecy that was given through the prophet Malachi was fascinating. I think this may just blow your mind. I hope it does. I'm going to, I'm going to let you free like calves from a stall, you know calves, you know, jump around and they're excited to be out of the stall and they, you know, older, older people, we, we don't do as much. We don't do as much leaping. But young calves, listen to the prophecy given by Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, the very final chapter in your Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. Okay, that God is going to come back and set all things right because he is the master of all things. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chafed, and the day is coming that will set them ablaze. So this is, he's gripping you. God's in charge of it all, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So that's, that's the reality of Jesus coming back and setting all things, or at least at this point, God through the Messiah. And then verse 2, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, S-U-N. But remember, when Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, he was claiming in a way, metaphorically, to be the sun. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his what? Wings. And you have the same word here, kanaf, the edge of a garment. But wings also, right? And you will go forth. 
What are you going to do when you touch the healing power of Jesus? Do you really want to touch the law? Did you come here just to be a good person? You know, I'm a pretty good person. You don't touch the law, it'll wipe you out. But see, this was a different picture. Reaching maybe for the law, but seeing that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the law, but the embodiment, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, was she somehow, I think, see, I think in some way, she had the audacity to think that she would, she would be accepted by him, healed by the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. I wonder if she knew. I don't know. I can't speak to everything she knew. And Well, you'll tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. And who are the wicked? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces. It's spiritual forces that keep us in disease and pain and trauma and chaos and, and all the drama of life. Those are wicked forces. And immediately there was treading down as the healing from the wings came forth. So what is the point of of this last culmination of chapter 8? You do what the Lord tells you to do at the moment he tells you to do it, knowing that you're still a son and a daughter, even when you fail, even when you're tossed around, because the Lord would simply say, where is your faith? You're still my daughter. You're still my son. I I haven't left you. Come back. Reach for me. Reach for the talit. Reach for the corner of my garment. There's, I'm the son of righteousness. Reach for my righteousness. So as a church, we're reaching for his righteousness. We're trying to listen to his voice, follow his lead. We've made it through the storm, but have we? Is there another storm? I don't know, but we can still be calm and cool and collected, knowing without a shadow of a doubt, just as this woman found out that there is an eternal weight of glory that now rests on you. It's transferred to you. The Lord feels it, I believe. Power has left my body. I know it. And where did it go? It's going on to you. You're the light of the world. It's not just about you and your salvation. It's about you being the power and the light, and you get different eyes and a different perspective on life. And guess what happens? People begin, moths begin to come to your light. And as you do that out in culture, we will grow and we will accomplish the purpose for which God sent us into this valley.